the era of global warming has ended, the era, the era of global boiling has arrived. As our land disappears, we have no choice but to become the world's first digital nation. Director of the UN Environment Programme, uh, she said scientists have been telling us for over three decades of the dangers of allowing the planet to warm. The world listened but did not hear. And The 28th Conference of the Parties of the UNFCCC being hosted in the UAE from November 30th to December 12th this year, our team sought out Professor Simon Donner, a climate scientist at UBC who in his own words is focused on helping the world prevent and prepare for climate change. Simon Donner was a lead author on the most recent Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Assessment Report and served as an appointed member of Canada's Net Zero Advisory Body which advises the federal government on achieving net zero emissions. Join your hosts, Alessia and Gaurav, as we get Professor Donner's first-hand account of being an IPCC author. He tells us about his time attending COP27 last year and gives us his realistic expectations for this year's COP28. Professor Donner also touches on the case study of Kiribati, a Pacific island state facing drastically rising sea levels where he has worked extensively on the ground. So you are a lead author for the most recent Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC, assessment report, um, the AR6, which is um, meant to kind of advise policymakers at the Conference of Parties on what the status of uh, climate change is like from experts and scientists like yourself. Um, can you tell us a bit about what the process of, of your involvement was like from candidacy and selection all the way through to uh, your authorship and your contributions? Sure. Yeah. Hi, everyone. The So the IPCC, or the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, puts out these large assessment reports every seven years, and uh, with sometimes some smaller reports in between. And it is not a fixed group of people. I think that's a common misunderstanding. So the IPCC are a bunch of people that are elected by their country's governments uh, to uh, assess the status of climate research. And it's clear to understand that it's an assessment. It's not original work. So everything the IPCC is publishing has to it has to be published elsewhere. And so really, you're charged with just assessing everything that's been done on the, the subject since the previous report. So that's like kind of your point of departure as the previous report. Uh, and so, um, so a lot of folks like myself. I'm you know obviously a professor at a university, and I do climate research. Um, you can nominate yourself to be uh, a IPCC author. Um, you can also be nominated. I don't remember. I think you have to nominate yourself in Canada. Um, I think I put my name in for a for the sixth assessment report for AR six. Um, and uh, a, within Canada, there's a, a process for it. There's a Canadian government, uh, you know, secretariat or office that's in, the person that's in charge of sort of the IPCC the liaison. And uh, yeah, and you just apply to them and you apply based on your expertise. So you say, you know, what do you work on? They look at your CV or list your publications to see whether you have, they feel like you have sufficient expertise to go forward. Um, my being involved in this report was partly because I was supposed to be involved in the previous report, uh, the special report on um, global warming of 1.5 degrees, which was not a major assessment report, right? It was in between the fifth and the sixth assessments, but it was this special thing that the, IP, that the UN FCCC had asked for. Uh, and uh, I was supposed to be an author on it, and I couldn't just for family reasons, basically, uh, and had to pull out at the last minute. And so then when the sixth one came around, I was like, well, I might as well do this. <laughs> and so that's what happened. And, and so your name goes forward, and then the IPCC secretary, like the, the government together with like the, the other government reps around the world then have to figure out mix of authors that can fit the subject matter as well. So, um, you know, if there were 50 potential Canadian authors that all could have been on the oceans and coastal ecosystems chapter, which is what I was on, um, then maybe I wouldn't have been selected, but it's, it's kind of, it's, um, it's like this funny jigsaw puzzle, like a, matchmaking thing of trying to make sure that the countries are nominating people that actually fit the, the needs, right? Because um, the, the, there'd already been a meeting scoping out what the report would be. Yeah, and so then I ended up being an author on the uh, uh, working group two, which is the impacts, adaptation, and vulnerability part of the assessment. So, so the second part of the assessment, and I worked on the oceans and coastal ecosystems chapter. And so it's like climate change impacts uh, on the oceans and coasts. 
Um, and then once you're part of the IPCC pro process as a lead author, you also go to the meetings and you end up sometimes liaisoning with other chapters. And so I liaisoned with another other chapters on things, and I was a contributing author on, on the key risks chapter, which is chapter 16. I'm wondering if you think this seven-year timeline is something that's reasonable if the IPCC assessment reports are, again, from my minimal student knowledge, if they're the most important climate literature that get out there for policymakers to kind of work with. Is that a reasonable timeline, or should it be made more frequent in terms of the amount of reports they send out? So it's a good question. It's a good question about whether they should be more frequent. I would say the question you might have is like, could they be? I would turn that into maybe could they be even more up to date? Mm. So the challenge with the IPCC is is an extremely exhaustive process. So from the first time day of being like nominated to be an author and told you're going to be an author to the point the report comes out uh, is two and a half years, and then after that, the three. Uh, Parts of the IPCC report, working group one, which is the physics, physical science, working group two, part I was a part of, and working group three, which is on mitigation or reducing emissions. Those then, six months later, after the third one is out, they're combined together into a short synthesis report. And that requires its own process. So it's really this multi-year process just to create one of these things. So you couldn't really realistically do it much faster, to be honest. I mean, you could maybe say instead of seven years, it's like five and a half. But... Um, the other thing is that as much as we are learning, as much as we're experiencing climate change in real time, the research on climate change, it's not like advancing that rapidly on a year by year basis. So to assess it every two years might not be worth it. I think the place where I would say there's more controversy or debate with the IPCC is whether we should be doing more special focused reports and just saying something that won't be as time consuming and that you could turn around a little bit faster and that could be focused on a key problem or a key question that's out there that's not as resolved. Um, because a lot of what's being done for the IPCC reports is um, valuable, but it's in essence repeating things that people already know. It's reassessing the literature, reassessing um, and trying to see if anything's changed. You know, and, and the key thing that's changed over the many reports is that as more data has come in and more science has been done, the level of confidence, you know, on things like the contribution of humans to climate change have gone from kind of conditional to being pretty much treated as an established fact, right? Um, and so there's, there's great power in the process of the IPCC, but it is slow. And so it's not the best process for trying to figure out, like, what's the latest finding. Right, because the latest findings, you know, can be produced so much quicker than an IPCC report can. If that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, well, that kind of brings us to our next question, which is, in your experience, what do you think is lost in the transfer of uh, a lot of scientific expertise and advice into climate policy? Uh, oh, it's a, it's a great question. So science and policy are different things. We want science to inform policy, but science can't be the only thing that informs policy. So the IPC, IPCC, IPCC, yes. for example, its um, edict as created, as created by the world's governments was to be policy relevant, but not policy prescriptive. Right. And I see you're not, you're, our hosts are nodding, meaning they've heard this before. Uh, but it's really important to say that, right, that the goal of the assessment, and the assessment is not just science, it's all, you know, social sciences, there's a lot in there, right, is to say, here's what would happen if you made different decisions, not to say what decisions should be made, right? Um, and, uh, and so that when you get into the policy realm, the choice is, okay, like, what choices are we going to make? And the hope of people like myself from the scientific community is that, like, the science will be considered in those choices, but I have to be honest, even as a scientist who's been doing this for a long time, I don't think scientists should be able to dictate policy decisions. Mm -hmm. It's not a way we could make decisions. And really, nothing works like that in the world. If you even think about like the food you eat, right? And we have, you know, um, the Food and drug, drug Administrations that control what's allowed to go on our food, right? You think about, well, some level of this uh, chemical, we can't have more than that in our food or in our water because it would be unsafe. Right. And people are like, well, that scientists determined that. Well, no, scientists didn't actually determine that. Scientists produced research that was used to help make the decision. But the decision still comes down to a value judgment about how much 
danger are we willing to put up with? How much risk are we willing to take, right? And so we debate about pollution standards and water and air and all sorts of different things because inevitably the safest level is going to be none of something, right? But we're willing to accept a little bit of risk because of the cost it would take to get that risk down to absolutely zero. And zero risk is probably next to impossible in this world. So if you think about that and sort of transpose it over to climate change, you've got the same sort of challenge, right? The world scientists are warning of how much the planet's going to warm with, you know, different levels of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. And they can warn about what that's going to mean for the sort of physical climate variables we experience around the planet. And they can do assessments of what that's going to mean for biology and ecosystems and a little bit for society, although you get more and more uncertainty, you know, as you get down towards more specific impacts. So we can assess all of that. But what people want to do about it is a separate question because somebody could come and say, yeah, okay, I, I trust everything you're saying about the climate impacts, but I'm willing to put up with it. And I don't think we should invest money in it. And in, in essence, when you think about what happens at the UN climate summits, that's why countries are able to disagree. We have, we feel countries, uh, governments don't have the same assessments of the risks of climate change. They're sometimes fighting against the data, but they've all agreed to the publication of the IPCC report, which means that they all agreed with the key findings in the summary for policymakers. They fought about it and they tried to, with this, you know, some countries, Saudi Arabia, for example, will try to whittle down and weaken some of the statements in the, the summary for policymakers in the IPCC report, but they have agreed to it, which means that the governments all accept this. I mean, even Trump, who was denying climate change like crazy, his government had approved the IPCC report and their own national climate assessment. So they had as a government said, yeah, yeah, we believe climate change is real, even while he was saying something else, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, but, but then they could decide we just value taking action differently, right? Now, I personally disagree with those that don't think we should take aggressive action to reduce climate change, but this is what makes those climate conferences of the party so challenging, is that we're a big global family and we don't actually all agree on how to do this. Just a quick follow-up before we move on to our next question about the COPs. Um, what you're describing here, I'm just trying to get a sense of it. Is it different policymakers from different kind of countries, different corporations, and just different entities at these COPs or these climate meetings? Is it them picking and choosing from one set of scientific literature and then disputing how best to use that information? Or is it them using different mm -hmm. sources of scientific information? So it's scientists also disputing each other as well as policymakers then? Going yeah, no, so it's a great, great question. So the the... One powerful thing we have is the for that helps with the UN climate summits is the existence of the IPCC. So they are separate organizations, right? The IPCC was was created uh, separately before the passage of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, which is the thing that creates all these climate summits that all the world's countries um, agreed upon back in 1992. The IPCC was created because the um, basically in the 1980s, the world's governments recognized that what scientists were starting to say quite loudly about climate change would have major implications for like how we generate energy, how we use energy, et cetera. And there was this sort of sense that we can't let scientists go out shouting about this stuff unless we're having it well assessed and our governments are agreeing with the assessments. So they created this really weird thing that's not a scientific body and not a government body. It's this hybrid where they're scientists and other researchers, it's really not all scientists, mm -hmm. but they're appointed by governments. And the reports have to be um, approved by the governments. And so the result of that is it's an unbelievably thorough assessment of the research on the subject. And then the governments give a sign off on it. There's nothing else that really exists like this in the world in any branch of science, with the exception of something being done on biodiversity now, which was just modeled after the IPCC. So it's a really unique body. But the existence of it means that at if you're sitting in the negotiation session that's got any sort of scientific piece to it, and I sat, I've sat in on a few of them, they're building off of the negotiators and the diplomats are building off of the IPCC reports because that's supposed to be their document, right? They can bring in other things and everything, but you can't bring in something that's countering the IPCC report because you're the delegates at these, you know, negotiating the text of an agreement at a COP event. They represent their government. 
and the government approved the IPCC report. So even the Russians and even Saudi Arabia, though they fight about all things around climate change, they approve the IPCC report. So the negotiators aren't going to go back on that. And so it provides a little bit of uh, stability. And so, you know, the, the climate, the UN climate summits aren't about climate science, but they're kind of like uh, the climate science is some foundation that leads to them happening. And so if aspiring IPCC researchers who want to get their kind of research into that document are dependent on national governments to get them in there, does that technically mean that if you're a researcher with a lot of research to contribute, but you're operating in a country or under a nationality that doesn't see eye to eye on certain things, does that mean that you can't actually get in there? Uh, no, absolutely not. I mean, so uh, in terms of the IPCC, the, I, the, the IPCC authors are charged with Again, they're not doing original research. So I wasn't there doing research about the oceans and coasts. I was there doing assessments of research on the oceans and coasts. And so that meant literally looking at from the date of the last research counted in the previous report, everything that was published on the subjects I was contributing to for the report since then, and assessing what of that is policy relevant. You know, and then I help write some of the sections. Other people edit those sections. It's a big collaborative thing. It's sent out to the world for comment. Anybody in the world can comment on it. And so, um, so the process is open to anything. And um, it's not to say that all literature is going to be absolutely perfectly and fairly captured. For one, it's just like impossible to do. Um, um, second, uh, access to actually publishing your findings is not equal around the world. Right. Um, you know, and then and then the third thing, the IPC is assessing things that are policy relevant. So it's not every single paper written about um, sea level rise and, you know, low lying coastlines. It's every paper that writes about that subject that has something of policy relevance in it. Uh, and so so all that stuff is it is it's very international. Um, so. We wanted to move on to talk about your attendance at COP27. Sure. Um, at Sharm el Sheikh in Egypt. Um, we read your blog post about it. Uh, <laughs> so we were wondering if you could tell us about what in what capacity you were there and whether you had any any direct role in in negotiations or, or whether you were consulted. Um, a great question. Uh, so I had no direct role in negotiations and. Uh, I would say like 95% of the people that go to COP don't. Mm -hmm. um, so they're very funny things. So the, the UN climate summits are diplomatic meetings with negotiators from different countries working on text of international agreements. Uh, these are things that go on on all sorts of subjects all time, all over the year. They don't get much attention. This one gets a lot of attention. And what's happened is because it's uh, of such, because, you know, such great importance to the world, the climates, the, these UN climate negotiating summits have kind of metastasized into these climate change trade shows. So in addition to the, to the actual diplomatic negotiations going on, there is this uh, trade show, there's pavilions, different countries, different organizations hold pavilions with talks and, and events at them. And then whatever the, the presidency is that year, whatever country's hosting it, they also have theme days where they say, you know, where there's, today we're going to be talking about food and there's a whole bunch of Big events going on in food. So that's why so many people come. If it was just the diplomats, there'd be 3,000 people. If you bring everybody, it's the whatever, 28,000, whatever, they were there in Sharm El Sheikh last year. And supposedly at COP28, close to 100,000 people might be there. Um, very few of them are actually participating in the negotiations. And so if I would say one thing that push back against what you hear in the media, um, we often hear about how many people from fossil fuel companies at COPs. And the impression that gives that these people are in there negotiating on the text of the agreement. They're not. They're not allowed in the negotiating rooms. The people in the negotiating rooms are the diplomats. For some of it, you are allowed to be there as an observer. So if you have a badge that allows you to be an observer delegate to the main event, which I've been in the past, you can sit and watch some of the negotiations. If it gets to something very sensitive, the observers are thrown out of the room. And if you haven't been following the subject for long and really put in some upfront research, you sit down on those negotiating sessions, it's going to be hard to follow what they're talking about. Because effectively, they've, they're, they've, pre, they've been working all year since the previous COP on, the, on a variety of different subjects, uh, parts of different treaties, et cetera, right? And so 
for example, let's think about uh, Article 6, which is uh, um, from the Paris Climate Agreement, which is about emissions trading, creating a global trading scheme. So from COP26, there was, you know, they didn't come up with an outcome on Article 6, really. It was pretty weak. And so that was something they had to work on for COP27. So all year there was side meetings working on text. And then by the time you get to the next COP, they already have draft material. And it's kind of interesting. You look at the text. It'll be a lot of things in square brackets. And the square brackets means these are different options that you can choose from, right? And so when you sit in negotiating sessions, they often have screens up with basically like everybody looking at a Word doc of, you know, and, ed and editing it together. And they're going bit by bit, raising your placard saying, you know, Canada wants to speak next, Saudi Arabia wants to speak next, with a comment on, on what language could be due. So I find it really interesting to watch. Um, it's, it's slow, you know, a little bit of like watching paint dry. <laughs> but if you know, if you've been following what happens, uh, if you've been following the subjects for a long time, uh, it, the comments in these diplomatic meetings are fascinating because they have such huge subtext beneath them. So I sat in on a session about a very, very wonky thing, which was about greenhouse gas metrics. So what metrics we use to compare different greenhouse gases. And um, there's one classic one that's always used, but there's some alternative ones that have been proposed. The alternative ones um, have some value, but they would change the relative uh, importance of a gas like methane. So if you've come from a country where a lot of your greenhouse gas emissions are from cattle, you're going to like a metric that will reduce how bad methane is. And so it was very fascinating to listen to the countries very politely, because it's diplomatic, discuss the use of these different metrics and even just simple adding a language like should there be a conditional word there or should it be a more fixed word all because of something that seems wonky and unimportant but it's telling you about where their emissions are from and that they don't want livestock to be counted too much so while yeah. that is um, it definitely sounds fascinating to to kind of listen in on and see where everybody's interests lie would you say that's kind of upsetting when it comes to climate optimism and in terms of diplomacy um, what's kind of your outlook on it? Do you think it's actually getting us anywhere? I actually, I think that cops are incredibly valuable. Um, I think the circus that's evolved around them, we can debate about. But this is the biggest collective action problem in the history of the world. The world's governments need to meet and talk about it. We don't have to like what comes out of it, but they need to meet and talk about it. Just like families that don't always get along, you know, people still need to, people should still talk to each other, right? And so... At the very least, I find that the cops inform us where the hardest, where the biggest stumbling blocks are, where the disagreements are. We need to know that. And so this is a way of finding it out. I don't necessarily think that the agreements that are signed have the impact that people want them to have. Like saying, if the world, you know, comes to an agreement and we're going to agree to avoid two degrees, avoid one and a half degrees and reduce emissions by this much. Um... I don't worry about that actually as much. And the reason is that although we do have international governance in the sense of having these meetings, the international system doesn't control the choices that happen within countries. And so it's all well and good to agree to this in an international meeting. It's easy to set a target. The hard part is implementing things. And so when it comes down to it, it's really going to be about what, you know, region, you know, national governments, regional governments, provinces, states, et cetera, are going to be doing at home. And this, these big international meetings about kind of egging each other on to do more and seeing where everybody else is, right? And so I think that sort of assessment side of it is really valuable. Um, and I think the mistake we often make is we look to it as like, well, they're failing because they didn't solve climate change. I'm like, this thing can't, the UN climate summits can't solve climate change. Even in a perfect world, they wouldn't still is going to come down to decisions the rest of us make. But we need the countries talking to each other. And so I do think it's valuable. It's setting the, the government and diplomatic framework, setting the governance framework to, to encourage people to make this change. Right? And this is, it's unbelievably frustrating. And I'm with it. I've been that person. I'm with everybody that, gets, that is upset about the lack of action on the international stage. And all I'm just saying is this is, I'm, this is more like realism than optimism or pessimism. I just look at it as like this is the most 
complicated problem the world's ever had to try to solve collectively. We can't, no individual country or into person can do this. So we have no choice but to try to like, you know, muddle along together. And so we need these meetings. Yeah. It's not a very, uh, I wouldn't call that a, like an uplifting or a depressing mm -hmm. statement. It's just like how the world is. Mm -hmm. We wanted to turn the discussion to COP28, which sure. is uh, approaching in a few days now, hosted by the UAE. Um, what are your general expectations for the conference and its outcomes? It has an agenda around clean energy, climate finance, protecting lives, livelihoods, nature, and people, and also inclusivity towards local and indigenous communities. Um, do you think those accurately reflect global priorities for climate action? Uh, not quite. <laughs> so I think COP28 is um, the, the story that you're going to hear out of COP28 or the, um, or the way it's being set up by its presidency is very much to steer the focus away from thinking directly about fossil fuels, right? Uh, and it's because it's being hosted by the United Arab Emirates. Now, to be clear, the host doesn't determine the tenor of doesn't determine the content of the actual negotiations because what's being negotiated like the different negotiating groups with the diplomats in them a lot of that is determined because of long-running policy work that started many years ago some of it with the paris agreement some of it before some of it last year in sharm el-sheikh and so we're just sort of continuing on that and so among the things i'm interested in from that is what are we going to decide around the next global goal for climate finance right so how much is the problem is is the goal going to be set to provide or mobilize funding for the developing world each year, and is it going to be just one number, or are we going to break it down and say there's a fraction of that that should be for sure for adaptation, and will loss and damage or reparations be included somehow? So like that's a really important thing that's on the agenda. Uh, you know the other really big thing on the agenda is what's called the global stock take, which was this thing to be done every five years under the Paris Agreement to say. How much have we accomplished? Where are we? And let's assess it and discuss it. And uh, a lot of the big negotiations at COP28 on the diplomatic side is going to be around the analysis of the stock take is done. It's going to be around how is it explained? So it's, are we going to express disappointment and say we need to be more aggressive, et cetera, like that type of thing. And will we say because although emissions, the rate of emissions increase is been declining, like we're starting to bend a curve on emissions, they are still going up globally, not as fast as they were, but they are still going up globally. There'll be a big push to say we need to phase out fossil fuels in the global stock take text of text of the what comes out of COP28. But there's a bunch of countries, including the host, that won't like that. So it'll be interesting to see how all, all of that evolves. Um, my, my biggest concern, I would say, about COP28 is the story that gets told out of it, though, because it's in the UAE, it's in Dubai. And because there's going to be such contention about fossil fuel presence, we're going to hear so much about what was not accomplished and how much trouble the planet is in. And not about all of the things that are happening on the side of the meeting, which is the, which is there's going to be a lot of side events, a lot of pavilion events, a lot of things in kind of the big trade show and the big circus about this rapid mobilization of clean energy around the world, right? And that is a real thing. And it, I think, will be drowned out by a well-meaning concern around the world about fossil, how much, whether fossil fuels are mentioned in the text or not. I mean, so I don't want to diminish the importance of the text of the agreement, but um, it, I, think it, I think it could end up being a distraction from seeing that there are actually, there is actually progress happening in places. Going off of the, I don't know if you would characterize this as progress, but the well, the updates on establishing loss and damage funding at COP27. I know COP28 is supposed to operationalize this, if that's the right word. Yeah. Um, but before I ask you what that would look like, I just want to make sure I understand what loss and damages actually means. Because I heard this somewhat frivolous analogy over the summer, and I'm wondering if that's somewhat accurate. So we take two people, X and Y, where Y, for some reason, punches or hurts X. Mitigation would be stopping that punch from coming all together. Adaptation would be why providing extra the bandage is sort of like a thing to, you know, recover themselves. And then loss and damage would be paying their hospital bills. Is that somewhat what it is? That's a pretty or, good. That's a pretty good analogy for loss and damage. Uh, loss and damage is the reason it gets so much attention 
or one among the reasons they get so much attention is that when the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change was signed and, and all the climate conferences of the parties began, there really were kind of two tracks of climate change. They're thinking about climate change. You are either reducing emissions, you know, preventing climate change, so that's mitigation, or you're preparing for climate change, and that was adaptation. And there's a recognition we need to do both because even if we mitigate as much as we can, climate change is already happening, so we need to do some adaptation. Loss and damage is like a third tranche. Right. And it's to say, well, hold on. We've already have climate impacts. Should the parts of the world that are more historically responsible for emissions be compensating those that have experienced climate impacts? And it was a big deal to get loss and damage on the agenda as this kind of third thing. Um, so it was a big victory just to get people to talk about it. I am not confident <laughs> that we're going to see a very effectively operationalized loss and damages fund. I think there'll be something, um, but for a few reasons. The world is already challenged, the developed world, I should say, or it is a world, the world is already facing this challenge of mobilizing funding to help the developing world respond to climate change. So that was this climate finance challenge decided upon many years ago, 2009 in Copenhagen. $100 billion a year by 2020, and we want to up the number and everything uh, going forward into the future. We've not yet that, we've, the world has never met the $100 billion per year. Um, but it's also very sensitive to accounting, because it's not like one fund. It's an accounting of all the ways money might move. So grants uh, through international development uh, agencies, investments, private investment, public investment. Like, so it's so complicated to figure out what the hell should count, right? And so a lot of countries in the developed world, rightly or wrongly, I'm not defending it, are going to say, listen, we can't even figure this part out and you want us to create another fund? And so like, we're not going to do it. And in some cases, there are countries whose governments, whose governments currently are quite climate activist, but are worried that even though their leader says, yeah, I would love to do this, to do it, you'd have to get it through their Congress or their parliament. The US is the best example, right? Joe Biden's administration takes climate change extremely seriously. But you ask his envoy, John Kerry, and he says the U.S. is never going to pay climate reparations because they know they can't get it through Congress or Senate. So it's, it's a, it's a, it's, they're saying we're just not even going to help in the discussion. But they're also worried that once you agree to that, suddenly there's lawsuits and stuff. And to be honest, as a scientist, I also do think it is a bit complicated because to prove if you get down to individual events, it's hard enough to attribute an event, to, an extreme event to climate change, but then to say which country should be compensating, it's complicated because then it becomes a question of, well, your home, this community was flooded because of a hurricane. You have to say, well, what fraction of the hurricane damage is from climate change? That's hard enough. Then the second part is, well, whose choice was it to build the community there? Maybe they should have been built somewhere else. And I'm not saying I agree with this line of reasoning, but it's really complicated. And so there's a kind of political fight against loss and damage, and there's kind of a logistical one, and the two of them kind of do a dance together. And they, I, it's the reason loss and damage has been so hard to do over the years. It is a subject, I'm a, I, I mean, I've been working in small island developing states for a long time. It's a subject I'm very sensitive to. I talk to colleagues in the region about a lot, but it's also one that I just, I honestly am not sure how operational it really is in the real world. Yeah. Are there any concrete proposals you've heard about that seem to want to operationalize in certain ways that make more sense than others? Is it based off of maybe GDP? Yeah, so I think the thing that's most likely to happen is what started last year, where it was a couple countries that you know, said, we're willing to contribute some money to a fund. Uh, and I think the way to do it is it's not, I think when you try to do direct reparations, uh, think of it that way, pay the hospital bills, as, as you mentioned. <laughs> The, the challenge with it is it's, it, it, it demands a type of cause and effect that just doesn't exist as cleanly in climate science and climate change than it does with other problems, right? Uh, and so probably a better way, and this is kind of the way the world's governments have leaned, is to think of loss and damage as let's help with early warning systems, right? And let's help with uh, funds to help people rebuild after disasters and everything. But let's not do something that makes that that sort of bordered on like legal liability for damages. In part because 
and I don't agree with this part, but a lot of developed countries would not be down with anything that sounded like legal, legal liability for damages, right? And then they use example, they just don't want to do it, right? But even if they wanted to, it's actually quite complicated to do in practice. And uh, to be honest, I'm very sympathetic to the loss and damage conversation, but a lot of it from the um, very well-intended activist end, just there hasn't been a lot of thinking about how it would actually work. And when you get into how it would actually work, you realize it's really hard to do. Yeah, and I wish it worked, but yeah. Well, you just mentioned um, the Pacific Island countries that you've uh, obviously done a lot of extensive uh, research on. You've spent a lot of time in the Kiribati Islands. What do you think loss and damages would mean from that perspective and from the people that you've spoken with there and, and worked with there um, in terms of uh, perceptions of climate di diplomacy on an international scale? Yeah, I really, I really appreciate the question. And uh, I, I never want to uh, speak for any of my friends and colleagues in the Pacific Islands. I want them that they should speak for themselves, but I'll give you the perspective the best I can. Um, the first thing is I think around loss and damage is there is a great sense of the inequality of climate change in a lot of the Pacific, which is where mostly where my experiences have done a little bit of work in the Caribbean as well. But it's not probably what outsiders imagine of like people demanding funds. They're just saying like this, there's, there's just a fundamental inequality and we just want help to be able to respond. We're not necessarily asking for you to take, we, we don't want further colonialism and want people taking things over to try and do it. It's like, hey, just support us so we can do this, right? And so that's what I hear a lot. Um, I think this is where loss and damage turning into sort of like better support for relief organizations could be really valuable. The Red Cross in the Pacific, you know, Fiji, where I lived during our sabbatical. Um, my family lived uh, and worked uh, with colleagues there. Um, you know, right, just not long after we left, Cyclone Winston, you know, knocked power out to about half the country, uh, left, uh, left, uh, um, I can't remember the percentage, but it had a huge percentage of homes on the island that people had to leave their homes um, because of flooding and uh, wind damage and everything. And hey, just better international cooperation on relief efforts could always be valuable, right? Obviously, we want to prevent these storms, you know, well, at least prevent the impacts of these storms from getting worse, right? But we also want to help people that just experienced it. So that, that type of stuff's um, really important. And I would say to me, otherwise, the most important thing about loss and damage being on the agenda is almost more rhetorical in a way. And this sounds weird, but I mean, I'm not that confident about what's going to be produced out of an actual agreement in the diplomatic negotiations, as I've said. But I think by having it on the agenda, it's reminding people that listen, folks are suffering as a result of climate change in the Pacific Islands and beyond. And let's make sure we're figuring out ways to accommodate them. Uh, and an example would be Australia just signed this deal with Tuvalu, which is a, a small island uh, developing state that's just south of Kitabas. It's a neighboring country to the country I've been doing my field work. Um, that's going to give Tuvalu support to try to expand the land base, basically, on the main islands and make uh, more space for people's homes, raise the uh, make homes higher up as well and uh, and potentially allow um, you know like work permits for Tuvalu and people to, to work in Australia so okay that's that's a bit of a loss and damage type um, support um, on that note could you tell us a little bit more about the land raising initiatives uh, for these islands that are kind of being put in place now yeah so the first thing to say is when you hear about land raising initiatives it sounds like preposterous and I know that because I can see the look on the faces of our, our lovely hosts here today um, it uh, you have you heard about these islands in the South China Sea that are disputed between China and the Philippines right it's you know like China's built like military bases effectively on those islands those are coral those are effectively coral atolls so they are geologically the same things as these islands we're talking about in the Pacific, Tuvalu, Kiribati, the Marshall Islands, etc. So you can build land anywhere if you have enough resources and are willing to try to put the effort in. It's hard in a place like Kiribati or Tuvalu, uh, both in terms of resources, financial, human, and physical, like actually the sediment they use to do it, um, for one, right? And then just logistics. This is a lot, if you're bringing materials in from the outside, it's a long way to bring them right? 
but it is physically possible. And the coral atolls themselves are physically dynamic things. And so some of the atoll, some of the islets in the main island of Kiribati, where I've been working for years, it's the atoll called Tarawa. Some of them have grown over the past 70 years. They're actually larger than they used to be. Some of that is from natural processes, but a lot of it is just from people doing what they call reclaiming land. Uh, um, and so uh, you have a home on the lagoon side of the atoll. Uh, you build a little rock wall fence out onto the, like the reef flat basically. So, you know, below the high tide line to stop the water from coming in. And then you throw material and old coconut, you know, palm fronds and coconuts and stuff, uh, sand that you can find and everything and build up the land in between, right? And build yourself some extra land. And so people have been reclaiming land using informal measures for years and now more kind of Western style as well for a long time. So it is possible. It does also naturally happen over time because of shifts in currents and things. Um, and so now, you know, basically... Uh, Countries are arguing, we don't want to be seen as refugees. We want to adapt in place. And so we want help to build up our land base. And so there are proposals for parts of the Marshall Islands. There's a proposal for parts of Tuvalu. And there's a proposal, there's a bit of a proposal for Tarawa, the capital of Kiribati, but it's not very serious. Um, there is not the money or resources behind any of these proposals. Uh, but it is technically possible. The question is, is somebody going to provide the resources? And I'll tell you, if Tarawa, the capital Republic of Kiribati, was off the coast of California or off the coast of Florida, this would be happening. Mm -hmm. Right? So this is about, you know, geography and inequalities in the world. Not to problematize what is an effective solution to a very immediate problem, but would there not also be environmental impacts from raising land and from drilling? Yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely, there are. So it depends. So the main, main thing is you just need like sediment and gravel uh, to, build up the, to build up a land base. And again, I'm not necessarily advocating for it. And I'm just saying that it's not crazy that the countries are, right? Um, you can, uh, so where's that going to come from? So right now in, I'll give you an example. So in Kiribati and um, Tarawa in the capital, uh, they've had for years a project, a European Union funded project, cost about 20 million euros, uh, to have a big, huge dredging operation in the lagoon of Tarawa. So Tarawa's got a massive lagoon, so it's like a ring of islands around this huge lagoon that is mostly sand. There's not a lot of coral in the lagoon, but there's algae and other plants and there's fish that live there and everything. So if you, do, if you dig, it's going to disrupt. So they did an environmental assessment of where would be a good place to dig for materials, and they built a dredging operation. And so they have, they use that for anyone who wants to uh, sand uh, to build a seawall on sandbags. Basically, what they said is they made it illegal to do the traditional practices anymore. You can't just go out there and steal rocks off the reef flat and steal sand yourself. We want you to get them from Public Works, which is getting them from the dredging operation. It sounds rough, but it's actually probably good policy because if everybody on their own makes the choice to pull the rocks off the reef flat, well, the rocks are gone and those things help absorb some of the wave activity. That collectively, as a community, the better thing to do is get all the material from somewhere else. And so you, like we do here at home, you just, you do an environmental assessment and every activity we do is going to have some impact on the planet and you try to choose the one that's going to have the least impact. And effectively, that's, that's what we're doing. I'm not, I'm, I don't always trust that the process is going to work as well. And so there's major risks, uh, obviously, to doing this. Um, but, you know, folks in Kiribati and Tuvalu and Marshalls, they're kind of only asking for what people in cities like ours have done. I mean, Science World, that end of False Creek in Vancouver, it's all fill. That should be part of the ocean. Right? We filled it in. We think it's fine. Why shouldn't they be allowed to? Mm -hmm. Why are we all talking about the small island developing states? I know this is a very different sort of topic and I didn't know what to make of this when I read this news piece, but sure, yeah. I heard that Tuvalu is going on the metaverse <laughs> and I'm wondering what exactly to make of that sort of news article. That, um, that would require my knowing more about the metaverse to tell you that. I did hear that. Uh, and honestly, I think they're just trying to find other ways to reach out to people around the world to these are, in some cases, extremely small countries. Tuvalu, there are 10,000 people roughly living in Tuvalu. There are more Tuvaluans in the world, uh, but there's only about 10,000 people in Tuvalu. So it's a very, um, 
it's a small place you can understand why there's you know less representation. Kiribati is a fair bit bigger. The population is about 130,000 people. But even then, you know, the main island of Tarawa um, has about half that population, right? UBC has more people on campus during the day. <laughs> I know we um, did wrap up our conversation somewhat on COP28, but I just want to bring in this hmm. last bit of controversy because there's something many people are talking about, which is, I'm sorry you can predict, Sultan al-Jabir's appointment as, I believe, the president, designated now the president of COP28, um, where there's many people are pointing out some sort of a, well, irony in the National Oil CEO being in charge of the entire proceedings. I've heard competing arguments where some people are saying, well, objectively, that's just a very dumb decision. On the other hand, I know you mentioned earlier, and many people are saying, while there are these corporations and corporate players at these events, they don't typically have a seat at the negotiating table, and this is one way to maybe kickstart that process. Many people are saying that this could make it more difficult for them to escape their responsibilities to actually take action on climate change because they're being put in the spotlight in a way that has never really happened before. So do you have any comments on that? Yeah, I've wondered about that very same thing, the, the positive of having a, a cop in Dubai, in a, a country that clearly is reliant on revenues from uh, from fossil fuels and oil, although not entirely, um, that it actually will shine the spotlight in, in a good way, right? And uh, and so I don't, I don't know. I mean, I'm kind of curious as the rest of you about how this is all, all going to... Uh, come to, how this is all going to sort of come to pass. Um, I just think the important thing to understand, the important thing really to understand is that, you know, the fossil fuel companies, they do have an influence on climate policy at like regional, you know, state, provincial, national and international levels because they're lobbying governments and because they are a source of revenue for governments, right? Which is, it's a hard thing to deny, you know, it is a source of tax revenue for, for Canada, for example, right? Um, so they are going to have an influence. They don't have an actual seat at the negotiating tables is the key thing to know. So when there's, when you're at one of these things, there are these, you know, it's a big, it be a big room, big set of tables laid, laid around in a square, some screens in the middle and everything. And everybody at that table has a placard representing a country. And those people are, you know, representatives of their governments with places like the UAE. It's a bit fuzzy though because the representatives of their governments are so closely tied to the fossil fuel communities that you can end up with some, uh, somebody from a fossil fuel company effectively chairing the entire event. Um, so um, my feeling is that I think this is the world and let's just, you know, I, I, I just think COP28, I, I like that the cops are honest in a way. And then this is the reality of the world. We don't agree on this. People are fighting for different things. And uh, better we lay it all out there, right? And so in a way, I kind of like the idea that the the biggest disagreement we have on the issue is just laid out there bare in COP28. I could be wrong, but I, I find it um, might be helpful in a way. To close out our conversation, as a professor, I'm sure you have a lot of conversations with students just about the outlook on, on climate change. There's a lot of climate doom in our generation, yeah. I'd say, for us to be inheriting a lot of stagnating kind of climate diplomacy and this feeling that we, what can a student really do, especially here in Canada? What, not to put you even more on the spot, but what kind of would you be able to say on that? I think the doom feeling, uh, it's a fault somewhat of my generation, the generations before mine. Some of that is that we didn't do enough to address the problem, but also that we communicated it poorly. And that we, this climate change fell um, kind of into, it got, it got claimed under sort of the environmental label as an environmental issue, when it's really an issue for people and for energy systems and for all these other things, it's not just about the environment. And so we ended up, it ended up being communicated the way environmental issue, issues were communicated in the 70s and 80s which was like, you're all going to die, right? And it, that is an effective motivator for some, but it's not an effective motivator for, a lot, motivator for a lot of people. And the truth is that what makes climate change such a challenging issue to, survive, to, to uh, address is the disconnect between the causes and the effects, right? That if we are successful at radically reducing emissions and slowing climate change, will be rewarded with not having something happen. 
So you won't know what you were going to, what we were avoiding, right? And so as a result, sometimes the best argument for the climate solutions are that they're good ideas anyways, right? So if you think about it, right? And I point this out all the time to people that, you know, burning fossil fuels in addition to causing climate change is the number one cause of air pollution on the planet. And air pollution killed more, is like the number one cause of death on the planet, pretty much, right? Kills more people than cancer, killed more people, if I'm correct on that, and killed more people last century than World War I and World War II combined, right? And if we transition away from fossil fuels in order to slow climate change, we'd also fix that. So there's a lot of, so I just look at this as something not so much with optimism or pessimism. This is just about courage. This is like an, uh, I know that it all sounds very, um, can sound scary for anybody your age and any students who are listening to this. But another way to think about this is that your generation and mine too, I'm sadly old enough to be your, both of your parents. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, but our, our generations are kind of have the opportunity to kind of like change this and like solve one of the biggest challenges of the past century right, of the Industrial Revolution. And I don't even mean climate change. It doesn't mean air pollution, right? And, like, kind of make the world a healthier place. And their previous generations didn't have this type of power because the world wasn't connected in the same way, right? But now we really kind of do. And so some people, I understand this can be scary, but I also think it can be very inspiring. And so I would just say that um, if you're feeling the doom and the anxiety. I'm not a psychologist, <laughs> but just that sometimes comes from thinking about the big picture and you're just one small person. What can you do? And maybe that's not what you're thinking uh, like directly, but that's maybe indirectly what's going on implicitly in your mind that drill it down to something you can do. What can you do in your community? What can you do in your family? What can you do at home? And it goes from everything from the personal actions you can do to reduce climate change, but to the even more important, the collective ones or the political ones, what can we do to influence government decisions? And so I hear all these young people telling me they care about climate change and they ask them, did they vote? Or have you ever written a letter to your local MP? And they're like, no. And I'm like, well, if you care about the issue, that's what you have to be doing, right? And, and those things, there's also really good evidence for it. Those sorts of things uh, make people feel good. Right. So it's not just about making an impact on the planet, but it's sort of turning around the climate anxiety as well. I think that's an excellent note to end. So thank you so much, Rosessa. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for putting together this show. <laughs>